0: Hey y'all, you're listening to Word on the Street, an OML and RRC podcast.
1: Howdy everyone, my name is Grace Evans, she her, and I am a daughter, sister, friend, and student of political science, ethnic studies, journalism, and African American studies.
0: Hi everyone, my name is Isa Montes, I use she, her pronouns, and I am a daughter, sister, friend, and student of political science and ethnic studies. I also work in the OML, and this is my first podcast episode, so I'm so happy to be here and be in conversation with
1: all of you. And our guest on today's podcast, Dr. Sharmila Lodhia, she, her, is the chair of Santa Clara University's Women and Gender Studies Department. She earned her JD from Hastings College of Law in San Francisco and her PhD from the University of California in Los Angeles. At SCU, Dr. Lodhia teaches courses such as feminist theory and gender and law in the U.S. Welcome Dr. Lodhia. Thank you for being with Issa and I today.
2: Hi there, I'll just add I'm a mother, daughter, sister, and friend and I'm really excited to be here today as well. Thank you for inviting me. To begin our podcast today we want to
1: talk about kinship terms. This is Grace speaking, and kinship terms are something that I learned about in an e-course I recently took by Speak Out. It was titled Beyond the Land Acknowledgement, and it was led by Megan Redshirt Shaw, an Indigenous teacher and activist. And kinship is defined as both relationship and as the sharing of characteristics or origins. And often Indigenous cultures will introduce themselves and tribes in kinship terms. And we have a bit of a lengthy paragraph about kinship terms, um, but I think it's necessary context for this episode. So this is from A Nation of Families, Traditional Indigenous Kinship, the Foundation for Cheyenne Sovereignty by Leo Kevin Killsback. One of the major destructive forces to American Indian peoples were the assimilation-based policies that destroyed traditional kinship, kinship systems and family units. This destruction contributed to the cycle of dysfunction that continues to plague families and homes in Indian country. A second major destructive blow occurred when colonial forces, through law and policy, reinforced white male patriarchal kinship and family systems. In this colonial system, American Indian concepts, roles, and responsibilities associated with fatherhood and motherhood were devalued, and Indian children grew up with a dysfunctional sense of family and kinship. This article examines the traditional kinship system of the Cheyenne Indians, highlighting the importance of kinship terms, roles, and responsibilities. The traditional Cheyenne kinship system emphasized familial relationships for the sake of child-rearing and imparting traditional values of respect, reciprocity, and balance. Traditional principles of motherhood, fatherhood, and love were the backbone of the Cheyenne family. So that's a, a bit of an introduction to kinship terms. Um, and I'll open it up to Isa and Dr. Lodhia to talk a little bit more about um, what that means, reactions to what I just read, things of that nature.
0: Absolutely. I know we were speaking a little bit about capitalism earlier and mm-hmm. how often when we introduce ourselves, um, we speak in terms of the work we do or mm-hmm. like um, the majors we have. So I think it's really special to speak in terms of what we mean to our community and the places we hold in our community rather than the work that we do. Um, Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. I, um, since taking the e-course I mentioned, have started to introduce myself in classes and in professional settings with kinship terms um, because I think it's more interesting and it also allows people to relate to you in ways beyond what you study or what you do professionally. Um, For example, if I introduce myself only as my name is Grace Evans, she, her, and I study blank. Not a lot of people study exactly what I study, but a lot of people are a daughter, a sister, a friend, a student. They can relate to that better. Um, and so it allows that relational aspect that was talked about in the paragraph I read. Um, and I think it's really beautiful.
2: Grace, I, I really appreciated it because it gets us thinking to build on what Issa says about us outside of an individualist uh, model and more in terms of the collectives and raci- collectives that we're a part of, and also the relationships that we have within family and community. That I think is much more expansive than the ways we're often tasked to define ourselves in these meeting or classroom settings that are about what we do or what we study, um, uh, and titles and roles rather than kind of who who we are and roles that are sometimes deeply meaningful to us that get left off the radar. Yeah.
1: Speaking of community, Issa and I are reading All About Love by Bell Hooks yay. in Black Girl Magic with Dr. Sakina Hughes. Yes. Yay, yay, wonderful yay class. class. Beautiful oh. book. We had a wonderful guest speaker yesterday who's a black meditationist, mm-hmm. if that's what she's called. an call elder. I an elder also. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: what
1: was her name? I forget. <laughs> Go. Um, she was wonderful yes. and... It was such a beautiful. It's a beautiful class, and everything that we're doing is amazing. We got to select books that we wanted to read mm-hmm. for a book club, and so the class in total is reading three books. Um, and the book that Isa and I are reading is all about love by Bell Hooks. And um, in the chapter I read yesterday, it's titled "Community Loving Communion." Bell Hooks talks a lot about community, which is you know following up with what Dr. Lodia just said. Um, and I want to read a passage from the book that talks about the nuclear family and what it means to identify with community and kinship rather than that nuclear family. So Bell Hooks writes, much of the talk about family values in our society highlights the nuclear family, one that is made up of a mother, father, and preferably only one or two children. In the United States, this unit is presented as the primary and preferable organization for the parenting of children, one that will ensure everyone's optimal well-being. Of course, this is a fantasy image of family. Hardly anyone in our society lives in an environment like this. Even individuals who are raised in nuclear families usually experience it as merely a small unit within a larger unit of extended kin. Capitalism and patriarchy together, as structures of domination, have worked over time to undermine and destroy this larger unit of extended kin. So that's talking about community and kinship, um, but also what Isa was mentioning earlier about capitalism and patriarchy. Um because as bell hooks writes as structures of domination, they've worked to undermine and destroy the larger unit of extended kin by replacing it with the idea of the nuclear family. Um, but bell hooks in this chapter also talks about how we tend to experience love as community uh, beginning when we're born. Um, most of us are born into families that have extended families and we relate to those extended families. Um, and it's a really beautiful book. <laughs> I highly recommend reading it, but any thoughts or reactions to that paragraph or to any ideas about capitalism and patriarchy and how they reinforce the idea that extended kinship is not necessary?
2: Thanks for sharing that that section. Love that book. Wish I was in that class. <laughs> um, but I, I will say, I think, uh, particularly in light of what we're going to be talking about today, the, the sort of limited way in which uh, political forces are endeavoring to limit and define, continue to limit and uh, delimit uh, family structures in ways that exclude larger sense of community and kinship networks that are are really central to how we live and and engage with the world. just suggest how important that is mm-hmm. uh, now and continues to be sort of a salient point because it is a dividing line that's being marked, mm-hmm. I think, in, in, in political and cultural discourses in ways that are really frightening mm-hmm. in terms of, of um, patterns of exclusion, Yeah. in terms of different types of, of family units and structures and, and, and collectivities. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Do we want to talk a little bit about our family structures? Um, I can begin. Um, So my family resembles the nuclear family, but we're not at all a nuclear family. Um, And I say that because I have a mother and a father and one sister. So we follow that familial structure that is kind of imposed upon us by capitalism and the patriarchy. However, my mom is white, my dad is black, my sister and I are mixed, biracial black, And we're not wealthy, (laughs) so we are not what the traditional nuclear family is supposed to look like. Um, And how I experience kinship is primarily through family, also through extended family. I'm very close with the family on my dad's side. I grew up seeing them every year and we had this thing called Evans Fest. My last name is Evans. Mm -hmm. Um, And we had an Evans Fest every year and my aunt was so into it and she would make us hats that said Evans Fest and shirts that said Evans Fest. And we'd pick a location every year, usually where one of us lived and um, have a family reunion. And I grew up with that and from birth. And my cousins and I are very unique Um, in our ages. We... Are all one year apart exactly and there are six of us um, and we just go down in the ages and it's so wonderful that we are all so close like that and that's a bit about how I grew up and how kinship I experience kinship is primarily through family but I also experience kinship through my friendships um, and my relationships and those are very important to me. It's something that bell hooks talks a lot about in the same chapter of how many of us don't experience kinship through family, but through primarily through friendships and relationships and what that means. Um, and it's something that, as bell hooks describes, capitalism and the patriarchy suggest that family or romantic relationships are the only or the best ways to experience kinship. But Bell Hooks pushes back against that narrative and says, no, 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 friendships are just as important as other relationships we have in our lives. And she gives the example of oftentimes when someone, particularly a woman, is in an abusive relationship with a romantic partner, they'll accept the abuse or stay in that relationship in a way that they wouldn't if they were experiencing that abuse from a friend. And... So to give an example, let's say I'm in a romantic relationship and I'm also in a friendship and the friendship is abusive in nature and, you know, the friend is emotionally abusing me, whatever it might be. I'm going to cut that friend out because I wouldn't tolerate it from a friend, but I may tolerate it from a romantic partner because that relationship is seen as more important than the friendship by capitalism and the patriarchy. But it shouldn't be. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I think a lot about how we can change that. But I'm curious to know... um, about how you all experience kinship in your lives
0: yeah so i also have a mother and a father um but i i also have a sibling and i think like bell hooks talks about and all about love um we learn definitions of love from our families our families are the first schools of love and um before we started recording i was just talking about we were talking about our siblings mm-hmm. and my older sibling is one of my favorite humans if not my favorite human and I think I learn so much from them, I call them my first friend, um, and I think that's how I experience kinship, the love that I receive from my sibling and from my family informs the ways that I can offer love to others, the way I receive love from others. Um, I think my favorite example of this is I say, Um, my sibling believed I was good before I was good they believed I was cool before I was cool Mm. and I think that's something I try to implement um with the ways I interact with other people so I think that's my kind of testament of kinship Mm -hmm. um yeah
1: that's beautiful
2: (laughs) so nice yeah perfect um I'll say so my my parents immigrated to the U.S. from South Africa, and my parents and grandparents, and in fact, great grandparents, grew up in South Africa. So I, I sort of grew up in that uh, kind of immigrant household, in the sense that my parents were the first to come, and my mom ultimately brought her parents and and her siblings there. So we grew up in a much larger, uh, mom and dad and sister in the house, but but a much larger sense of kind of extended family, like mm-hmm. you were talking about, um, and lots of cousins, and a lot of time spent with grandparents. So I think about, when I think about our kind of kinship and growing up, it's it's the kind of relationships that existed with elders that we were in regular contact with, but also um, with cousins, right? So it was sort of a broader group of, of um, individuals that we would spend time with and that were our social network, right? There was sort of, at least in, in my growing up, there was less of sort of being out with friends and a lot more of kind of we're, we spend time in the afternoons and in the evenings with, with family. So I feel like we became extra close, I think, in terms of like what you're describing as well, Lisa, in terms of like our first friends and close network was really uh, within the context of the family and the community that existed, you know, uh, around our kind of uh, cultural community. And, our, you know, growing up in, a, in, a, in an area where my sister and I were the only one of, like, maybe two other South Asian kids in the school meant that 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 family kind of connection and kind of cultural connection uh, was really uh, important and valuable to us uh, growing up. But but like you, Grace, I would say, too, for me, one of the things that has been extremely powerful in my kind of kinship networks is also my... I call them my sister friends, but I think I have deep, long-standing relationships with um, women friends that I've known over... uh, a number of different years and contexts and now have been through, you know, marriage, kids, you know, uh, uh, parents, uh, you know, in different sort of spaces and ways so that know you so deeply that, that are also kind of on the journey with you in a different kind of way. And so I think that, that those spaces and the time that we spend together in community is so... Uh, valuable to me and sustaining to me uh, in addition to the kind of family and community networks that we have. So I'm grateful for the the largeness of that and Mm -hmm. feel blessed to be able to have kind of multiple communities and spaces to be able to consider kind of home spaces, you know, just because of that time and investment.
1: I love that. And I love the way you introduce (laughs) your girlfriends as sister friends. (laughs) That's beautiful. And I want to challenge you all to think of the ways in which you would introduce your family to someone else, as we are talking about language, um, I could begin. I would introduce my family as loving, caring, silly. <laughs> um, that Those are the first terms that come to mind, but how would you all introduce your families if you had to?
0: Hmm. Um, this is tough, because my yeah. Uh, I'm close with my mom's side of the family. She has Mm -hmm. six siblings. So, um, big family and they all are, most of them are in the Philippines right now Mm -hmm. or they grew up in the Philippines and they're in the States now. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would say (laughs) complex, but everyone's family is complex. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. We'll talk more about language in the context of classrooms after this ad break. Hey SCU, let's work together. To organize and program events on topics of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, or to request a racial justice workshop or safe space training for yourself, your organization, or your office, email oml at scu.edu or rrc at scu.edu. In winter quarter, look out for new events and more podcasts. Happy week 10, good luck with finals and we'll be back to chat with you next year. One of my classes where um, our first assignment was to conduct an interview with someone of a different generation than us, um, preferably a woman in our family, and so I chose my mother. And when I was interviewing her, I asked um, what words she uses to describe herself in terms of her family. Um, And I thought her answer was really interesting. She told me, That she was the youngest and she was the last so she was unimportant but she was the youngest and the last so she was important Mm -hmm. and so I was like tell me more about that Um, and she explained that in her family since she was the last of six kids um, basically like her birth certificate there were some errors about like the location the date and those were kind of just overlooked and yet when it came to playing a game of tag or any game, her siblings weren't allowed to tag her, or she had to win the game. Her siblings weren't allowed to tease her. Um, So she was special in that way. But I bring this all up to just kind of segue us into the words we use when we describe ourselves. And I think this is particularly important, even on a campus where we have to introduce ourselves in class, where we have pronouns, or maybe we don't introduce ourselves but what do we do when it comes to pronouns? Um, so I wanted to ask Dr. Lodia if you have any insights into how we structure a classroom, um, how we talk about ourselves
2: when it comes to class. Well, even just this discussion with the two of you has been really nice in terms of thinking about other ways, more expansive ways for thinking about introducing ourselves in, in relationship to one another. I think a lot of our focus Thus far, has been on uh, ensuring that we're using, uh, you know, the name somebody wants to be called by, using the, the pronouns that that uh, somebody wants to be identified uh, with, and and not thinking beyond sort of those categories. And I think it might be uh, useful to be to be a bit more uh, expansive in that regard, so that there also is sort of the. One thing I've heard sometimes from from students, and I think you know that 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 there can be challenges in terms of where people are at in terms of their own sense of identity or self-definition, right? So if that is if somebody is is um, uh, uh, sort of in a process of exploration, right, mm-hmm. in terms of their uh, pronouns and and or in terms of their their uh, comfort level with being, you know in, in a classroom, I think that that can also make force somebody to be hyper forced into kind of a place of hypervisibility. and for others it may not be something that sort of is, is, is carried as heavily. So I, I, I think uh, in some ways while we we should be in practice, I'm happy to, to be able to I think that there are spaces, I think in the women's and gender studies classrooms these are this is and in other classrooms as well, I think this is becoming more. Uh, a general practice, but I think that if we can situate that discussion in a larger discussion of other sort of aspects of identity, it may also create a greater sense of comfort and community in a classroom uh, in ways, but I think there is something very important and instructive about not making assumptions with respect to language, and sort of, when I hear uh, concerns from students feeling that they wish that there were, that that that, that was foregrounded in a, in a classroom discussion, then I think that, that we, we need to sort of Uh, embed this practice into our structures a a bit more because I think the challenge is that it varies so greatly across classroom to classroom and and I don't think the assumption should be that we're in a classroom a women's and gender studies classroom or an ethnic studies classroom where where aspects of identity will be talked about and they won't matter Mm -hmm. in other spaces so I think that 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 broader kind of um, macro discussion could be really valuable in terms of Bringing everybody to the table and making it part of our kind of uh, process of of creating uh, learning environments that are inclusive and 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 make uh, everybody in the classroom feel that they can participate.
1: Yeah, I that makes perfect sense, and I I think of a practice that we have in the Office for Multicultural Learning OML that we do is if we're having a discussion to preface the discussion, we'll say please introduce yourself with your name and your pronouns, if you're comfortable sharing them. Mm -hmm. It gets to what you were talking about, about comfortability. Mm -hmm. Some people aren't comfortable sharing their pronouns. They're still figuring out their gender identity and expression. um, And how they express that to people varies. So that's something that we do in OML that's helpful. And it reminds me of a Something that we do in OML called Safe Space trainings, mm-hmm. and uh, my coworker Mahek and I led one last year for the student EMTs, and the EMTs had asked us um, to talk about language and the importance of language and pronoun usage and things like that in wanting to provide gender affirming care to students. Right. And something Mahek and I did with them was we workshopped um, what it looks like to provide gender-affirming care and care that aligns with someone's gender identity and gender expression. And the thing that we did was we had the EMTs practice what they would do if they were caring for a student. And we had them practice it by stating their name and their pronouns, if they were comfortable sharing them, immediately when they interacted with a student. So that there immediately was a sense that the space they were in was both safe and brave. Um, And by introducing themselves with their name and their pronouns, if they were comfortable, they were creating that safe and brave space for the student who could be trans or non-binary to then share their name and their pronouns. And to also share a little bit about their medical history because the EMTs were worried, like how do we care for transgender students if we don't know they're transgender? Or how do we care for non-binary students if we don't know they're non-binary? And we talked a bit about what it looks like to introduce yourself mm-hmm. with language that creates that safe and brave space for a student who may be gender nonconforming or something like that. So that reminded me <laughs> of what you were right, talking right, about,
2: right? And that's just a, like you said, it's just a sort of subtle thing to sort of create yeah. that space also for yeah. for somebody. Who yeah,
0: yeah. I think language is so important, and it it's part of every every corner of our lives like you said health and also like classrooms mm-hmm. um and it makes me think about how it can be scary um to use certain language to be aware of what language not to use um and that language is changing and it will continue to change as it has since its existence. Mm -hmm. And I watched a TED talk the other day, thanks to my supervisor, Vernell. shout out. Um, (laughs) And it was um, a TED talk of a linguist um, named Archie, Archie, Archie Crowley. Um, They are non-binary transgender. And they talked a little bit about um, the deeply held beliefs that we all have about language and how, that can make it hard to um, the ways that we use language. It makes it a little harder for us. Um, so they talked about three beliefs, which were one, that grammar rules don't change, two, that dictionaries provide official, unchanging def- definitions, and three, that we can't make up words. Um, so they kind of proposed these three beliefs so that we can examine them and deconstruct them. and. A few things that I took away from that, um, one I think is extremely um, relevant to the use of they, them pronouns. Mm -hmm. The linguist Archie talked about how um, back in the day they used you in a plural sense, so they would refer to one person as thou, but when it was a group of people it would be you. Um, So that was just one example of how language can change and now we think of you Singularly, and that is correct in the same way that we can use they and them in a singular way and that is correct. Mm -hmm. Um, And not only that, but how important it is to let people choose the way that they are referred to. I highly recommend this TED Talk. It was extremely informative um, and talked about just the ways that language is supposed to change because it Mm -hmm. is a living thing and how dictionaries are just living documents of language. They're... um, Supposed to document the way that we use language right now, how some people use language right now, but how those can change over time. How they even brought up um, the word awful in the past, um, before the 19th century, it was used as like being full of awe. So, like, it was awe inspiring, Mm -hmm. Um, it was a positive thing. But now, awful, we think very much in a Mm -hmm. negative way. um, And we now use awesome to kind of take the definition of the old awful. Um, so language can change, and it should change, and I think it's really important to adapt um, new understandings and to listen to other people when they understand what language best suits them because they understand themselves the best.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I love yeah, that. So, yeah. I think that language, like you said, is always changing, is always evolving. Mm-hmm. I think of how they, then pronouns have literally always been used Mm -hmm. by people um it's a rainy day today in Santa Clara and for example if I were to observe that somebody left their rain jacket in a classroom I would say whose jacket is that like they're gonna be rained on today Mm -hmm. I wouldn't assume that that jacket was belonging to a male or a female or a non-binary person I'm just going to use the they them pronoun and people have done that for centuries. Yes. And um, it's not a new thing. So when people are attacking these, that they, then pronouns, I'm like, that's interesting mm-hmm. because they've always existed. <laughs> but it also makes me think about how we, like I said, Isa, I love that you bring up that TED Talk. And for those listening um, or watching on YouTube, we will have the TED Talk linked in the description below.
2: Yes, and the other thing that kind of gets me thinking about too is is thinking about the rules you shared, Issa, and Grace, what what you're talking about in terms of of comfort is also. I think that sometimes this I don't sometimes it's we know it's active resistance, but I think sometimes it's also just do a little bit of work, and it's not even that much work to be able to say what can I do to create a learning environment that's comfortable and inclusive and and see a person in a way that, that, that sort of meets them in their whole self. Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes we're in this sort of moment, I think also in the kind of cultural discourse where it's like, oh, things are moving too far and too fast and I can't keep up and I don't know what's what's expected of me. So I'm just going to sort of pause and sort of stay in this, this kind of stasis mode. And I actually think that, that I don't know, for me, I think it's important to have some humility in in these spaces and know that we are going to make errors. However, mm-hmm. however aware and on top of things that we are, you know, I, I, no matter how much we study and read and 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 try to um, try to stay on top of, of uh, changes in language, mm-hmm. that it that it is ongoing work that we have to engage in, be willing to engage in, and. Move through some amount of of change. Uh, in as you as you both have been saying, these 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 uh, terms don't come, or these sort of language uh, usages don't aren't without roots in history, or yeah. without roots in other uh, languages as well. Um, and I think that sometimes we have to just be comfortable with with. Uh, sorry it's not coming out right but no, but, but, makes because, but, but, but becoming accustomed to right even if it's if it if it does come out feel, feeling like uh, different or that i can make a mistake sometimes and no i can step back yeah. and correct and move forward and that people will understand that i'm doing that with with the intention of of not making an error but it will happen yeah that
1: makes perfect sense and it reminds me i don't know who said the quote but of the quote that it's important to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, As a cisgender person myself, I'm often uncomfortable in conversations about gender, and it's something I want to learn more about. And I'm comfortable with being uncomfortable because I want to learn. And I think there's a difference there between Wanting to learn and not wanting to learn a lot of people, the people that you mentioned, they don't, a lot of them don't want to learn, but there are, there is a sizable majority that wants to learn and wants to be better to make this world a better place. And those are the people that we need to
2: reach, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know, right. And I think if we start younger, I think about my kids and the ways in which, like, you know, I hear I'm teaching women's and gender studies, but sometimes they come home and they're like, mom, you don't know, whatever. (laughs) But I also think that their comfort level, I mean, I do, I mean, they're, they're, I'm, I'm, I think it's a blessing to have, have uh, this education and this, this sort of uh, uh, awareness of language and inclusion Mm -hmm. and, and identity become, happen earlier uh, in our in kids' lives, because I think it it will yeah. lead to uh, uh, changes in 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 larger cu- kind of cultures comfort uh, with that. And they move through it; they're able to make the changes. I don't know if you notice this with like younger siblings or cousins, but I feel like they much more seamlessly get yes. move into it. Right? They just yes. don't have all of the the things that we hold that are, you can't do this, you can't do that, or this is hard or this is whatever. They just are like, okay, that's who that person is and I'm Mm going to do it. Yeah. I think the younger
1: people in general are a lot more comfortable with change because the world is changing so quickly and technology has changed the world so quickly. So when we think about older generations who were used to the same old, same old for maybe 50 years and then something changed all of a sudden that was too, too fast. And so the younger generations I feel are more open to change than the older generations. And that's exciting. Like, um, I think about changing pronouns and the use of they, them becoming popularized now and how younger people are very quick to say, Oh, you know, this is my sibling. They use they, them pronouns. And the older generation is hesitant because it's not something that they're familiar with. Um, but yeah, things are always changing. I think of, Um, An example, when I was on Together for Ladies of Color, TLC's board, we had been using the word women with an X um, to describe the the population that we were catering to. Mm -hmm. And people came to us and said, you know, women X is actually not as inclusive of transgender Mm -hmm. folks because transgender folks want to be recognized as women period, not women mm-hmm. with an X, which we at the time had thought were being inclusive right. of including that. Um, but when transgender folks and others came to us and said, you know, we'd feel better included if you just used women, we said, okay, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think that willingness of us to change is right. reflective of kind of the younger
2: generations. Right. And just hearing that concern and, mm-hmm. and, and reframing the group's yeah. language in a way that, 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 meets that yeah request yeah with with openness and generosity rather than with defensiveness yes I think yeah. that's a lot of not what you would have in the TLC space but I yeah. feel like right in a lot of spaces I think that's where people don't want to be called out as having done something wrong yes
1: um, defensiveness and fragility I yeah. would add too Ooh, yeah. yeah yeah oh yeah yeah I
2: think fragility is <laughs> a big one yeah uh, yeah and I think it keeps us from having the some of those conversations those those more challenging mm-hmm. conversations in in classroom context I think too I hear from from students quite often that that they wish that there was more uh, space in the classroom mm-hmm. for faculty to, to sort of step in and engage when mm-hmm. something goes wrong rather than to just kind of walk away and wish it away and mm-hmm. you know individually speak to the student as opposed to sort of collectively bringing, the, that classroom into a conversation that engages with whatever dynamics took place and yeah. and collectively steps up to, to sort of you know work to kind of process through that situation mm-hmm. it may not even be that it can be remedied but it can be certainly uh, engaged meaningfully yeah. uh, and not to leave that on students I don't know have, have you all encountered that yeah. sort of sense of feeling responsible yes
1: I as a student I feel and as a student of political science and ethnic studies and as someone who works for OML I often feel as though I'm the first person in a classroom to introduce myself and introduce myself with my pronouns Mm -hmm. and like I said like we were talking about the EMTs earlier I think that goes a long way in creating that safe and brave space that we want to create and I think how different it would be if the professor on the first day of class were to introduce themselves hi my name is Sharmila Lodhia I use she her pronouns how far that would go in creating that safe and brave space for students. And like you said, it shouldn't be on the student to create that environment. Mm -hmm. The teacher, everyone, teacher and students are creating the environment together. Mm -hmm. But on the first day of school, I think that would be a powerful example of normalizing the use of pronouns because some people are hesitant to use pronouns anyway. I see so many street interviews on Instagram and TikTok and things like that of someone asked what are your pronouns? And they go, Oh, I don't have pronouns. I don't have, and the <laughs> interviewer's like, you, you do have pronouns. <laughs> I'm just asking what they are. Yeah. But so many people are hesitant to even <laughs> use pronouns. And yeah. then it's like the street interviewer will say something like, so how do you want me to refer to you? And they're like, uh, as a guy. And they're like, so he, him pronouns. And they're like, I don't have pronouns. And they just, it, they explode. And it's mm-hmm. so funny to me every time. Cause I'm like, you have pronouns use them Um, but people are so hesitant sometimes and so like you said defensive and fragile Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. yeah I think sometimes going back to classrooms um, students we all have varying levels of like um, I want to say like cultural competency yeah um, Yeah. or critical consciousness about uh, these topics Mm -hmm. and I think sometimes students um, will say something in class that maybe shows their ignorance, which is okay mm-hmm. if it's called in, I think, by the professor so that mm-hmm. the rest of the class feels safe still, but also that we can all learn together. Yes. When those things are kind of brushed over or not called in, then none of us learn. Um, right. And we continue to use harmful language or we perpetuate the beliefs um, that one student has just shared. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important when professors are discerning, but also when professors engage with the whole class and allow us to all learn from each other and together. Because I I think I have seen instances where something like that happens, but the student is either talked to after class or it's not addressed at all, which is just as harmful um, as maybe getting into a difficult conversation, which is uncomfortable. But like Grace was saying earlier, I think that feeling of discomfort is actually a sign that you're learning and that mm-hmm. you're growing, and it, it's something that we all need to do, especially in a classroom.
2: Yeah, I think uh, I did a taught a collaborative course in structural racism with Dr. Sonia McKenzie and public health, and I think one of the things that we did in, in our teaching at the beginning of that course was to sort of establish a set of of um, Expectations that we're collectively sort of cultivated as a group um, for the class, and I, I think about that a lot in terms of what might we do to kind of build in that infrastructure at the start of a course. When right, are, are we, haven't? I mean, it, it, it's. It's work in a 10-week quarter to be able to sort of cultivate the kind of trust and, and uh, in, in, in one another, in the faculty member, right, to be able to share things and to be able to have meaningful conversations that can get difficult. So I think that it's important to be able to think about how do we collectively set up a set of expectations that you can then go back to when something you know something goes awry in the class space so that even if you have to go away and come back the next class I've done that before where Mm -hmm. I feel like I walked out of that class and I didn't feel right about how I left things and Mm -hmm. how something was said and I didn't have in that moment the space to 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 sort of know how to intervene in -hmm. a way that I felt good about and I went back home and I beat myself up over it. But I, but I realized I can come back in the next day, and you all are going to be there, mm-hmm. and I'm going to be able to sit down and say, I left in this. I didn't feel good about this. Mm-hmm. And let's mm-hmm. let's re-enter this moment and have a discussion that that can can uh, enabled us to engage with that. Mm-hmm. You know, go into the thick of that discomfort and 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 navigate through it. Yeah, uh, in a way. But I think that that too can feel scary. Yes, right. Um, that space. class sounds amazing. <laughs> Are you teaching it again?
1: <laughs> because I need to take it.
2: Well, it was just, I mean, it could happen in any class, right? It was, yes. a, that was a sex law and social justice politics of advocacy course, but it was oh. just the way in which something had come up and been yeah. said about gender violence. And I researched gender violence. I teach mm-hmm. about it and it's the ways in which, I mean, again, and then this is something, a, a pattern I'm seeing too, more and more as we talk about as a campus, the sort of issues related to to. Uh, gender violence and sexual violence that, that these conversations are coming into classrooms but we're not all equally equipped of to course. be able to to manage and navigate the, the kind of harm that can happen in those conversations and yeah. so I think that that uh, and that can be again no matter where you are in terms of your experience and awareness but I think it's a space where we, we also want to be careful um, that we that we are having these conversations in ways that aren't re-traumatizing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, those, you know, individuals in that space or, or not, or, or that we're, we're honoring, you know, survivors' experiences mm-hmm. um, in those spaces. And I think that's mm-hmm. a challenge because it's like, I'm, I think I'm doing the right thing by bringing up this topic, but if it's if we don't know how to kind of scaffold that topic mm-hmm. in a way that, that sets up certain kinds of uh, expectations and rules, we can also do more harm yeah. by, by bringing it up in a, in, a, in a bad way, if that makes sense, yeah. right? Yes, um, and not holding it. In closing this conversation, it's clear that we
1: all have a lot to learn about language and language in the context of the classroom. And we want to leave you to think about the following question, understanding that we don't have the answers to it, um, but that it's something that we want to think about because we think it's important to think about it. So, Issa?
0: Yeah, so how do we as an institution better equip ourselves to enter these classrooms and have really tough conversations, especially on the basis of language, as it's so important in our classrooms.
1: Thank you both for this wonderful conversation. Thank, Thank you to yes. our guest, Dr. Lodia. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you we are so me. grateful for yes. you. Um, this has been Word on the Street. Tell your friends.